0: Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're going to read, uh, we're going to be using quite a bit of scripture today, so depending on how fast your fingers are, or if you prefer to pay attention to the screen behind me, the scriptures will be there. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 1. It came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. And then it doesn't tell us, but it's Nehemiah that prays in verse 4 and says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head." and give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed and there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they shall not know neither see till we come into the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times. That's a lot of repetition. From all places whence you shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore set eyes, as Nehemiah speaking again, therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work." It came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the habigins, or however you pronounce that word, and the rulers which were behind all the house of Judah, and they which built it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so built it and he that sounded the trumpet was by me and i said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people the work is great and large and we are separated upon the wall one far from another in what place therefore ye shall hear the sound of the trumpet resort ye thither unto us our god shall fight for us so we laboured in the work and half of them held the spears from the rising of the sun so from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared amen it's a lot of scripture but i think we need the whole story from the time in the old testament that david became the king of israel and if you know that story you know that was a long process all by itself but when he finally sat upon the throne of a nation that united under his leadership jerusalem became the capital city It was known as the city of david and Jerusalem was the centerpiece. It was the crown jewel of the nation and would become the location of Solomon's temple. It wasn't that there weren't other cities, but it was, the, it was the city everybody thought about. I guess today an example is if we think about the nation of France, most of us think about Paris. That's the easy option. There are obviously many other cities, but Jerusalem was the crown jewel of Israel. Sadly, it also has some very tragic history that is connected to our text. And with the help of the Lord this morning, I'm probably going to teach as much as preach from this title, Finish the War. Finish the War. After years of breaking God's laws and repeated warnings from prophet after prophet, the once unrivaled nation of Israel, which because of their sin and their disobedience had been broken into two halves, the northern and the southern kingdom, and that's a lot of history that we won't go into today. But finally, in the process of its degeneration, they are taken into captivity. The enemy has come, they have destroyed cities, they have slaughtered occupants, and they have taken some of the people back to their own countries for their own purposes. This great city that centuries later Jesus would weep over is in ruins. It is not even close to what it was in its glory days. There are walls that are broken down, burned with fire. There's only a few people left in the area, those that weren't deemed to be worth taking into captivity, that are existing probably not in the best of situations amongst the piles of rubble. And if you know the story of Nehemiah, you know that from captivity, he is miraculously granted permission and provision to go back to Israel, to go back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the story of Nehemiah and uh, you could almost say the sister story of Ezra go together are a wonderful reminder to us that it is always God's desire to restore. It is always God's desire to rebuild, to renew, even when humanity has earned the consequences of its actions god's desire is always to put the pieces back together israel time and time again it it almost when you read the old testament and you have a critical attitude because you forget your own humanity very easily it makes you want to slap yourself and say what is wrong with them and yet god again and again said if you will return to me if you will give up this wickedness if you will stop worshiping idols that you made with your own hands there are promises of restoration and renewal and we see this at least in part coming to pass in the story of Nehemiah as he takes a group of people back from captivity to the ruins of Jerusalem and with laborers and workers that come from all walks of life the task of rebuilding begins but as we read in chapter 4 there are those in the area who were very opposed to the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt Sanballat is the, seems to be the leader of the pack, but he had a couple of henchmen that were with him as well. And for, they, they did not want to see Jerusalem restored, and for, obviously, because it had some sort of a negative impact on their situation. It seems that Sanballat at least was a Samaritan, and, and he quite liked the fact that Jerusalem was not a threat, that it was not an opposition to him. It gave him a, a little bit more liberty, and a little bit more power, and so they were unhappy about the fact that Jerusalem was even being considered to be restored. And even despite the constant abuse and even doubt from in their own ranks, the scripture that we read tells us that they managed to complete the circuit of the wall, or at least whatever actual shape the wall was, they they plugged the final gap. They connected it all the way around. You read, I think it's through chapter 3, they restored gates in the different places and each gate served a particular purpose and even even in the gates there are some powerful principles and types in the gates of the ancient city but finally they managed to complete the wall but in verse 6 of what we read it says the wall was joined together unto the half thereof what that means is that the wall was only built to half its intended height they, they closed the loop the, the the gaps were filled in but the wall was only it wasn't quite where it was meant to be, which means that it couldn't do what it was meant to do. And the Scripture says that the enemies that were there, freshly angered by this development, began to increase their attacks. They began to speak more aggressively and even threatened to assault them, and there was, there was, there was conflict. And, and what that did was the Bible says that the workers on the wall, the bearers of the burdens, became weary and discouraged... Largely because there was so much rubbish, so much rubble and so much junk that was in the way, you ever gone out if you, to, you know if you ever maybe bought a house, moved into a house or you've allowed your yard to fall into disrepair, and you go out and you think, "I want to do this and this, but there's just so much to do." And so you go, maybe another time, and you go back into the house and do something else that's suddenly more important. They were overwhelmed by the rubbish. The rubble, the junk that was there. It wasn't, you know, nowadays we would expect it to be filled with litter, but I I don't think in Nehemiah's day they had a problem with plastic drinking straws. Like we do today, Have suddenly become a crime to have a plastic drinking straw. But it was the remains, the rubble and the rubbish was the remains of the past. It was the broken down, burned, crumbled pieces of what used to be there. That's what it was. And some of it may have been reusable, some of it they might have been able to get involved in the rebuild, but some of it was not fit to be reused. Even some kind of stones, and most commentaries suggest that the stones used Jerusalem were a form of limestone, and so when they are subject to intense heat, even the stones can have their integrity compromised, and they're not able to necessarily be reused in their original intent. And although it was a very wearying task, the completion of the wall had to involve the sorting out of the rubble. They couldn't ignore it. They couldn't just go, oh, well, this is how it is. It had to be dealt with. There were things that could be kept, things that I could say, hey, you know, dust this off, give it yep, that's okay, we can use that. And then there were other things that's like, no, that's just scrap. That's, that's useless. Let's take that away and move it out of the way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, to everything there is a season... A time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which was planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing The writer of this book speaks to us of the different seasons of life. Some of them we have no control over. There is a time to be born, there's a time to die. But there are others that we do have choice in how we participate in there. Verse 5 speaks to us about a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. And this reflects, to me at least, of how the builders of the wall in Nehemiah had to decide there were some stones they could keep. And some stones they had to throw away. Some things were worth hanging on to. Some things were only going to be a problem. And on this resurrection Sunday morning, we are reminded that it was a stone that was rolled away. That there was a stone as part of Jesus defeating death. The tomb is empty. The stone was rolled away and the evidence was there for them to see. Stones play a lot of significant images in the scripture. There were stones that served as memorials in the word of God. When the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, when the Lord miraculously caused the waters of that flooded, swollen river to roll back and they went through on dry ground, they were commanded, the Lord spoke to them, he spoke to Joshua and they were commanded that there would be a stone taken from the river, a decent sized stone, they didn't just go in and pick up a little rock, but it was obviously a significant stone. It was to be taken out and they were to be assembled in some format and it was to stand as a testimony and as a reminder of what God had done so that in the future, when they would come past with their children and their grandchildren, the kids would say, why is there a pile of stones here? It was an opportunity for them to tell their children about the miraculous delivering power of God. To be able to say, those pile of stones is there to remind us That God brought us in to the promised land. That the Lord miraculously brought us across the Jordan River. That God's promises are still true. That what he says we can trust. You go into the New Testament and Jesus and his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, they come to the temple. Matthew 24 and 1 says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. His disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. They wanted to get his attention. They Check this temple out, Jesus. It's a pretty impressive building. And in verse 2, Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily or truly I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. That that was a bit of a killjoy. You know, they'd come and say, Lord, look at this magnificent temple. And he said, sorry guys, but not even one stone is going to be left standing. In other words, utter desolation. It's not just going to be flawed or have a hole in a wall or need some renovation. It's going to be flattened going to be completely leveled and this was no doubt in the literal sense a reference to the coming destruction of jerusalem in 70 a.d when titus would lead the roman legions against the city and they would destroy jerusalem but the implication in the spiritual is even greater than that because what jesus was also telling us was that everything this temple represents The reason that you came here, the law of Moses from the Old Testament, the worship that was set up through animal sacrifice, all of that is about to be replaced by what I'm about to do. Now, they didn't understand it at the time, but later they would look back and realize that he was talking about a temple that was greater than that one that was built out of giant slabs of stone. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, I said I had a lot of scripture today, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, so one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the anointed body of God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, you did not come up with this all by yourself. He said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. He said, Peter, that's a divine revelation. And in verse 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The revelation that Peter had that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh is the rock that the church would be built upon. Peter, contrary to orthodox Christianity, was not the first pope. He was not the rock that the church was built upon, but the revelation that God gave him was the rock that the church was built upon. That's why Jesus could say, see this temple? It's coming down. But there's another rock. There's another foundation. There's something else that we're going to build something on that the gates of hell shall not prevail against. Amen. It's no longer a what or a where, but now it's a who that the church is built upon. The Apostle Paul emphasized this same idea when he wrote to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2. and verse 20, speaking about the church, he said, we're built upon the foundation, that stone of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief Cornerstone, the revelation of God manifest in the flesh is the chief cornerstone of the New Testament church. And if what you believe is not built upon that, you're on the wrong slab. Amen. Verse 21, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. This is not that old temple. This is a new temple. In whom you also are built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. This is the stone we keep. When the writer of Ecclesiastes said, some we gather, some we throw away, this is one we don't compromise on. This stone does not change. Amen. Jesus told them, and I believe it's recorded later in the epistles, that it was the rock of offense. It's the stone that those builders rejected, but it has become the head of the corner. Amen. This stone matters. Hallelujah. Paul said that Jesus is building his church. How? He's fitting us together. He's building us together on that slab. That's why the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, basically be careful what you build. He said, I've laid a foundation. He wasn't claiming the authorship of it, but he was saying, I've preached what Jesus has given me. This is the foundation. This is the chief cornerstone. You don't mess with that. But he said, take great care what you build on top of that. Because if it's of God, it'll survive. If it's not, it'll be destroyed by fire. That's what he says in Corinthians. Amen. And some things, as Jesus builds us together, both individually and as a body, corporately, there are things that have to happen to us as a part of that process. I don't know about you, but when I first started coming to church, not everything was sorted out. And guess what? It's still not all sorted out. Still happening. Still needing software updates. Don't things to be changed and modified and installed and removed. It's an ongoing process. The prophet Ezekiel recorded in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, in verse 26 he said, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. How do you feel being told you've got a stony heart? I will take away the stony heart, that's the sinful heart, that's the heart... That wants to do what it wants to do, that wants to please itself. And he said, I will give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you something that's got some flexibility, that can be shaped, that can be molded. And I will put my spirit within you, and will cause you to walk in my statutes or in my commandments, do what my word says, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. What's it talking about? It's talking about there's a change that's going from having a stony heart, the Lord's going to begin to transform us. He's going to put His Spirit in us and then His Word, if we will listen and obey it, there's transformation that's taking place. There's transformation that's taking place there. These are some stones that need to go. That stony heart, it's got to go. We've got to let go of some of those things. The Lord has to help us sometimes to get some of that hardness, get some of those stones out of our hearts. He has to turn over the soil to prepare the ground so that when the seed of his word is sown, life can begin to spring forth. When the gospel and faith, the Bible says, when they are mixed together, something happens. Something happens when the word of God is is sown into a receptive heart. It's sown into a heart that's willing to believe and to trust the Lord. It causes life to spring forth. Something powerful takes place. And so instead of the works of the flesh, instead of the things we did when we had a stony heart, we now start to produce the fruit of the Spirit. We now start to grow the things that God wants us. We're, we're made new. We're made new. Anybody been born again today? It's a, little, it's a little quiet in here this morning. I'm feeling like I'm in the wrong house. But we've been born again of water and Spirit, amen, and the Lord wants to produce fruit. Some of us might have even been soil that others said would never Amount to anything. Some of us have had people say, you'll never do anything worthwhile. Some people have had people, when they started going to church, you'll never stick at that. You'll never finish that. But here we are this morning, testimonies to the transforming power of God, that we are able to produce fruit supernaturally, that our brokenness has been made whole, that our hopelessness has been turned around. Amen. But once we're born again, is that the end of the stones? Are they all gone? The Lord continues to sow his word into our hearts. And what's going to happen is there's going to be other things that are going to need to come out. Other things that we find. Stones that may have not been as observable from the surface. But as the plough goes in, there are some things that are deeper as the soil is turned over by that plough Things have a way of making... The, the the ground has a way of bringing things to the surface. And there's a youth camp that we've used for our Western Australian youth camps a couple of times. I can't remember where it's located off the top of my head, but the the site used to be a timber mill. It used to be a, a timber mill. I don't remember where the place was. But when they decided it's not going to be a timber mill anymore, rather than try to relocate all of the machinery and all of the equipment and everything that was a part of it, you know what they did? They dug a dirty great hole... And they buried everything and covered it over. So now when you go there to have a youth camp, one of the rules of the camp is you have to constantly keep on closed shoes. You can't have flip-flops or thongs or anything like that. You've got to have closed-in shoes. Why? Because bits of metal just have a way of making their way up out of the dirt. Because some genius decided to bury a sawmill in the ground. And our hearts are a little bit like that. Things have a way. Amen. Things have a way over time of just... Spring it up. Amen. And the Lord says, oh, look, there's something else we need to deal with here. Because those things interfere with our fruitfulness. Hurts that are suppressed. Bitterness. Suffering from a long time ago. You know, something you going along with that plow and you and Jesus are having a great time. Then clang. That blade hits a stone. You're like, oh, what is that? And we're all a bit shaken. Because by human nature, we'd rather bury it than get it out. Smooth it over and say, nothing to see here, move along. But the word of God reaches, it probes. And the enemy of our soul likes to throw stones in as well. See, stones hinder fruitfulness. In Second Kings, just as an example, Second Kings 3 and 19, this is an instruction of how enemies were to be treated. It says, you shall smite every fenced city and every choice city, And fell every good tree. Cut all the trees down. Stop all the wells of water. And then it says, Mar every good piece of land with stones. So anywhere that... that They didn't want people to live there anymore. Anywhere that crops could be grown, they were to bring in stones and just fill the place with rocks. Why? Because it made it almost impossible to grow something. When Jesus gave us the parable of the sower and the seed in the Gospels, he spoke about these different kinds of ground. And in Matthew 13 and 5, this is what he had to say about the ground that was stony. It says, the seed, some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. That's the problem with stones. They take the place where there's supposed to be soil. And forthwith, they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. There was, there was There was new life, but then it died off very quickly because the stones hindered the growth. So to get back to where we sort of started a little bit, What am I saying this morning? Am I I saying that we should be building walls or or removing stones? Just in case you think I've lost the plot today. It's always possible. Actually, it's both. It's both. Remember, some stones are to be gathered, some are to be cast away. The challenge is working at which is which. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1 this is the Lord speaking about Israel, about his people that he loved. It says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, now, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, did everything right, set it up perfectly. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes wild grapes when it says the vineyard was fenced it's a wall it's, you know they didn't go down to Bunnings and get a roll of fencing warrants and ready made fence posts they built a wall they put a wall around the vineyard to keep things out so the owner of this property which is it's a picture of the Lord's relationship with Israel he removed the stones from the ground but he also built a wall there was protection and productivity that was designed to be working hand in hand and yet the bible says the soil brought forth wild grapes that were not fit for consumption some commentators suggest they might have even been toxic or at least make you pretty sick and so the 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 message was the lord is saying i've done everything for you i have provided everything you need what kind of fruit is this jesus repeats that concept in a very similar fashion, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 21, it's, it's not on the slides, but he talks about a vineyard. Again, he talks about a vineyard is, is prepared by its owner. It's much the same as what we read about in Isaiah chapter 5 where the, there's a wall and the, all the stuff is taken care of. And then he gives that vineyard to servants and says, take care of it, I'm going away for a while. And then after a while, there are servants from the master that are sent back to the vineyard to gather some of the harvest because, hey, the vineyard belongs to him. And what do they do? They beat and they even kill the servants. Finally, the master, the owner of the vineyard says, oh, I'll send my son. I'll treat him with respect. And they kill him as well, hoping to take it all to belong to themselves. And Jesus, Jesus goes on to tell them in the same passage, he said, I'm the cornerstone that you rejected. He's saying to Israel, you are my vineyard. You are my vineyard. I, I had a right to expect fruit from you. But every time I sent you a servant, you killed him. In other places, it talks about how they killed the prophets. And then now he's saying, now even I'm coming and you're rejecting me. This is not how it's supposed to be. Amen. Jesus said, the vineyard that I gave to you, that I trust you, I'm going to take that off you. I'm going to give it to someone else. And that someone else is you and I this morning. Okay, let's, let's try and bring this together. Let's try to make some sense out of this. I know I've wandered around a little bit. Let's try to bring this together to where it meets with us here this morning. Jesus said that the temple in Jerusalem was coming down. Part of that was judgment. Part of it was because it had served its purpose. And that purpose was now finished. He told the disciples that when the Holy Ghost came, it would be in them. It would be in them. Paul unpacked that idea a little further in Corinthians when he wrote about our bodies becoming the temple of the Holy Ghost. But Jesus was saying, you know, that temple's done its dash. This is where we're heading now. Amen. And before you and I were born again, if we're really honest, if if we were able... See, here's the challenge, is trying to accurately reflect on our own spiritual condition. Because we tend to do that comparatively. We tend to say, well, I was never as bad as Jonathan. So I must be pretty good. And then Jonathan might think, well, I'm better than Benji. He was a terrible child. But but when we consider our sinfulness, it's in comparison to the Lord. It's in comparison to his word. And the prophet told us that we're like filthy rags. Everybody, even the respected and the higher-ups and the have-to-dos of society, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so if we're able to try to find, and here's the challenge a little honesty with our spiritual condition before we were saved, we looked a lot like Jerusalem did when Nehemiah got there. Not in its glory days, but when Nehemiah arrived on the scene. We were plundered by wickedness. We had broken down walls that couldn't keep anything out. We had rubbish that would overwhelm us. Anybody ever been overwhelmed by the troubles of life from time to time? The ability to solve our situation was a seemingly impossible task. And like Nehemiah and those that labored with him, we have an enemy that constantly shouted about our hopelessness. You'll never be this. You'll never fix that. You'll never change. You'll never, you'll never. But the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar because all of those things were true, but God. Today is Easter Sunday. The price was paid on Calvary to buy us back so that broken down, run down, rubbish filled vineyard, if I can use that parallel, Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. And now his word begins to take root in our hearts and he begins to turn over soil and he begins to remove stones that are there because of sin and heartache and what miraculously begins to happen is that the barren ground begins to produce fruit. Lives that nobody thought was of any value. God begins to say, I can bring life out of that. The Old Testament prophesies about springs in the desert. That's, it's a contradictory statement. It's a place where there shouldn't be water. The Lord is saying, I can bring water where it's dead. I can bring life where it's barren. Amen. And as the stones come out, the roots can go deeper. And they can become stronger. And fruit, but also now if we will let him, he's also going to help us. This is the part we have to contribute to. He's going to help us to build the wall, to build the wall. Not a wall of hardness. We're not talking about building walls against other people or hardening our hearts. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about a wall that is a defense against the enemy. We're talking about a wall that will protect what God is doing on the inside. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 28 says this. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. That's pretty much all of us in our unsaved condition. No defense against sin. Anything can come and go, even despite our best efforts. Many, of, if not all of us, were ruled by emotional responses that we struggled to control. No rule over our own spirit. Things like anger, jealousy, bitterness, pain, depression, anxiety, fear. These are all things that people are overwhelmed with amen in galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 and i'm nearly done you'll be patient with me galatians 5 and 19 paul said now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these adultery fornication uncleanness lasciviousness idolatry witchcraft hatred variance emulations wrath strife seditions heresies Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings and such like of the which I tell you before as I have told you in the past. He said, I'm repeating myself that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That same passage in in the New Living Translation says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. In a city without walls, those things just come and go as they please. There's, there's no security. You know, I, I, I've traveled, been blessed to travel a bit. I've been to places where, when I went to Pakistan with Brother and Sister Sham, just to get into the hotel we had to go through three x-ray machines just to get into the hotel such was the security then there's the other extreme where i've traveled i went to a very remote place in indonesia where they had one of those x-ray things you walk through and you could see the power cord going to the wall and it was turned off and we walked through different extremes of security <laughs> when, when when we haven't got the lord and we've gotten a rule over our own spirit we're kind of a little bit more like this model than we are the other one. Anything can come in and out, however it feels like. That's how it works. But as the Word of God grows in our hearts, it begins to produce fruit. The next couple of verses in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such there is no law so what is happening here is as the ground becomes more fruitful it strengthens the wall as we produce fruit as the roots go deeper there are things that the lord produces in our lives that help us to have defense against the enemy you think about some of those things you know we talked about having no rule over our own spirit temperance means self-control Temperance means we're able to restrain some of those things. We're able to control some of those emotional outbursts. Long-suffering means that we're willing to go through some things rather than react with strong emotions. Gentleness is one of those things that if we're a strong and a fairly blunt person that whose motto for life seems to be, well, they needed to hear it. We need some gentleness. These are all things that build the wall, that keep a fence out that keep the enemy from having his way in our lives. As the ground becomes more fruitful, the wall becomes stronger. We need them both together. And when you read the rest of the story of Nehemiah, they had challenges, they had struggles, they had, they had problems with each other. Who would have thought that was possible? They had problems with each other. They still had the struggle. But they made up their minds to reject the voice of their enemies, They worked and fought at the same time. Weapons and tools in each hand. They builded what God was wanting them to build and they opposed the enemy when he came against them. Amen. And chapter 6 tells us this in verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished. It got to its height. And in the 20 and 5th day of the month, Elul in 50 and 2 days. And it came to pass. That when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. Why? For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. That God did it. That because they trusted in God, because they did what God said, they let His word produce fruit, even the enemies couldn't deny that God was with them. Stand with me if you would this morning. I want to challenge us today. I want to challenge, let's finish the wall. Amen. If you've been born again, that's wonderful. But let's get the stones out. Let's allow the fruit of the Spirit to come in our lives so that that wall can be built up and that harvest can be fruitful and we can bring forth things that glorify God. People say, how do I grow the fruit of the Spirit? I'm working really hard on long suffering. You don't work hard on the fruit. You work hard on the soil. You say, God, change my heart. Turn the soil over. It'll produce fruit. If you've got a fruit tree that's not bearing, it's the situation you will look at. you look at well, what's in the ground? Does it have enough water? Does it need some of this or some of that? What can we do to provide an environment to promote fruitfulness? The fruit of the Spirit grows in a fruitful environment. You can't just decide, well, I'm going to work on temperance. It, it's good to do that. I'm not saying don't work on it, but I'm saying... If it's going to happen God's way, it's happening as, a, as a, a result of health, spiritually. It's not because you made up your mind that this year's New Year's resolution is long suffering and goodness. It doesn't work like that. It works when the Holy Ghost brings forth fruit. It works when we will stand and trust him. When the enemy's going crazy, we will resist the enemy and say, Lord, I'm just sowing your word. I'm sowing your word into my life. I'm going to believe we're going to build that wall up and the goodness of God, his mercy, his grace. When the enemy comes against me, I can stand against that. When he tries to bring division against me and my brother, I can have patience and kindness. When I feel like I want to react angrily, the spirit of God is going to give me temperance to be victorious. Lift your hands and worship him this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray across this place.